absolute nightmare wherever you went. If you went into the heart of the city, Manhattan, a parking spot was almost impossible to find. But even in suburban New York City, Westchester County, where we lived, parking was always a chore as well. No matter where you went, even in Westchester County, you usually had to pay to park, and most of the time the spots were limited. On top of that, when it came to things like parking meters, the meter officials or the meter maids, whatever they're called, were diligent to make sure that you're paying on time and not a minute too late. Because of all of those realities, parking tickets were a regular part of life in New York. But be that as it may, both out of financial motivation and general principle, I was bound and determined I was never going to get a parking ticket. Even if I had to drive around for days, or even if I had to go out and feed the meter multiple times, I was committed to avoiding all parking violations no matter the cost. Which is why I was incredibly surprised and frustrated when I saw a parking ticket on my windshield from the city of White Plains. Now here's the thing, I don't remember exactly the situation of my parking ticket. All I remember is thinking they had caught me on a technicality that was not clearly labeled on the signs. And so I was not going to go down without a fight. And so it was that I made my first ever, and to this point only, court appearance. I represented myself in traffic court in White Plains, New York, and I was determined I was going to fight that ticket until the bitter end. I came in ready for a rumble, but I was pretty quickly put in my place. In the first few moments, I answered a couple of the judge's questions with a yeah or a yep, and the judge bluntly informed me that was not going to fly in her courtroom. I was told in no uncertain terms I would answer her questions with a yes ma'am or yes your honor or no ma'am or no your honor. There would be no yas or yeps, nas or nos. There was a certain level of conduct that was expected in her courtroom and I would, if I was not going to adhere to that conduct, I was going to have an issue. Needless to say, those first few minutes got me pretty flustered. I started caring less about winning my case and more about not embarrassing myself any further. It was a humbling experience. But it was also an experience that taught me a valuable lesson. In certain situations, you have to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of where you are. If you're standing before a king, there's a certain level of conduct that's expected of you. Or in this case, if you're standing before a judge, you need to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the courtroom. Now, you'll be happy to know that in the end, I did get my ticket reduced by half as a result of my brilliant litigation skills. Actually, I'm pretty sure that she just knocked off everyone's half of the days, made the effort to come in. But all that to say, the end wasn't all that bad, but it was a humbling day. And I found myself thinking about that humbling situation in the courtroom again this week because of the language that Paul uses in our passage today. In White Plains, New York, I learned the hard way. In the courtroom, you are expected to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the judge. In Philippians 1.27, Paul uses similar language to challenge the Philippians that they should live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which makes you wonder, what exactly does that look like? Because if it's challenging to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of a courtroom before an earthly judge, how in the world do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what exactly does that even mean? Now the good news is this, in our passage today, I think Paul helps us to understand what he means when he says that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in doing that, I also think he helps us to understand that with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's actually possible to do this. So let's get to the passage, and let's pray that by the end of our time together this morning, we would have both the desire and the motivation to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're able to stand, would you please stand now as we read just four verses this morning, Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30, standing is a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the word of God, and as such, it is due our attention. 
So Philippians 1, verse 27 to 30, the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 37. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, in the original Greek, Philippians 1, 27 to 30 is one long, convoluted sentence. And the tangled nature of that sentence is certainly evident in the English translation as it's a little bit hard to figure out, okay, what's Paul's train of thought here? But having said that, the main exhortation of the passage is plain enough. We are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is how the passage starts, and again, this is the main aim of what Paul is saying, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the central exhortation here in verse 27, that we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, could literally be translated, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. The city of Philippi was known to boast of its status as a Roman colony. The people of Philippi were proud of their status as Roman citizens. In the same way that we might wear shirts that say Nebraska Strong or Fremont Pride, the people of Philippi were proud of where they came from. But in using the language he does in verse 27, which he'll use again in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is reminding the church at Philippi they are ultimately citizens of heaven. And Paul implores them in verse 27, they are to live as citizens of heaven in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, as I alluded to earlier, that phrase should help us, or should, as we hear it, we should immediately think that is going to be a challenge. To conduct yourself in a manner worthy of a courtroom, that's one thing, that's challenging enough. But to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a citizen of heaven, that is an entirely different level of challenge. And yet this is the exhortation that Paul gives to the Philippians here in verse 27. In essence, what he's saying is this, whatever happens to me, Philippians, whether I stay in prison and don't come to visit you or whether I'm able to visit you, either way, what I want to hear about you is that you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in the rest of the passage, Paul goes on to spell out some specific ways that they can actually do this, that they can live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, having said that, before we get to those specific things that Paul mentions, it's probably fair to say this, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is a phrase that is nearly inexhaustible. To live in a way that reflects the beauty of Christ's death on the cross for our sin and the power of his resurrection is a task that in some ways could never be fulfilled. It's a task that can never end. And yet Paul gives the Philippians some tangible ways that they can at least begin to do this. They can at least begin to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. More specifically, in verses 27 to 28, he gives them three ways in which they can begin to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The first is he exhorts them to stand firm in one spirit. So again, if we're, if we're ask, asking and then answering the question, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? The first answer we would give is we would stand firm in one spirit. Verse 27, again, the first half of the verse, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, 
I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we could start by saying is to stand firm in the truth of the gospel with one spirit. Now the mention of one spirit here could be a reference to unity, but more likely I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Either way, Paul is imploring the Philippians, stand firm. For the Philippians, opposition was a reality. Paul, who helped to start the church in Philippi, was in prison. And no doubt they faced opposition as well. And so Paul encourages them, in, in light of this opposition, you are going to have to stand firm. This language of standing firm certainly implies the need for perseverance. If the wind is blowing against you, you need to stand firm. If someone is trying to push you out of the way, you need to stand firm. If someone's trying to get you to do something you don't want to do, you have to stand firm. Standing firm then entails standing against opposition. And make no mistake about it, living out the Christian life requires a willingness to stand firm against opposition. I think that's something we probably need to be reminded of. For a long time, being a Christian in this country has been acceptable, if not even normal. But given the trajectory that we're on, it seems like that won't be the case much longer. To be a Christian in this country and to hold the biblical teaching, especially in the areas of gender, sexuality, marriage, is going to require some courage. It's going to require a willingness to say, here we are, we can do no other. The question is, though, will we? C.S. Lewis once said this, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to talk about holding fast to Christ when no one's opposing you. It's easy to talk about believing what the Bible says when everyone else around you agrees with you. But to actually hold fast to Christ and to hold the biblical teaching in the face of real opposition that might cost you your job, or that might cost you money, or that might cost you your freedom, or that might even cost you your life, well, that's a completely different thing. And yet Paul tells us here, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to stand firm in one spirit. Again, again I think that's the Holy Spirit. We're standing firm in the Spirit's power. To be a person who lives in a manner worthy of the gospel then is a person who's willing to make hard moral choices even if it costs us something. It's to stand our ground even when the world around us is going in the opposite direction. It's to hold fast to Christ even when it seems like our ship is sinking. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ means that we stand firm in one spirit. But secondly, it means that we are also striving side by side for the faith of the gospel with one mind. Again, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now the word that's used for strive here in verse 27 is a word that in the Roman world would commonly be used to describe an athletic contest. Specifically, it might be used to describe gladiators in the arena fighting side by side to accomplish a goal. And in that language of side by side, we're reminded of something really important here. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel is not a solo endeavor. It's something that we do together. Or to use another analogy, Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. When I was younger, we used to play a game called Red Rover. I don't know if you've ever played this game before, but the game is fairly simple. You stand in two lines you line up, you have a line here, and then across the field there's another line of people, and you're holding hands, linking arms. And one of the teams will call out for a member of the, another team to come over and try to run through the line. So they'll say something like, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Johnny right over. 
And then little Johnny will run as fast as he humanly can, and he's going to try to break through, you line, through your line as you're holding hands. And if he does so successfully, he gets to take one of your team members back to his team, and if he fails, he gets stuck on your team. Again, it's a fairly simple game, but kind of dangerous too. Right? If little Johnny runs hard enough, he might knock over little Bobby or Susie. Or if little and Susie and Bobby want to be mean enough, they can try to clothesline Johnny as he runs through. So given those realities, it's no wonder that we don't play Red Rover much, more, much anymore given the lawsuit-happy world we live in. But back in the day, it was a game that we played on occasion and enjoyed. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it was the ultimate team game. You cannot play one-on-one Red Rover. And if you were going to be really good at Red Rover, you had to work together as a team. A good Red Rover team would absorb the blow together. In other words, it wouldn't just be the two people that little Bobby's trying to run through, but the whole team would move and sway with the line so that they could absorb the blow. If you wanted to be good at Red Rover, you had to work together as a team. You had to strive together side by side. It's a team sport, and the way you win is by working together. And I think we understand this about team sports in general. To be good at volleyball or football or baseball or soccer, you need good teammates that will work together with you. And yet for some reason, even though the Bible repeatedly tells us that Christianity is a team sport, we often play Christianity as if it's an individual sport. When we think of Christianity, we think of our own personal quiet times. Or we think of individual boxes that we need to check. Came to church, check that box. Read my Bible check that box. Prayed, check that box. And all of it is individual. We think of what we have done. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Some would even go so far as to say, well, I don't really need to go to church because I can do church at my house. But that's like playing Red Rover by yourself. I mean, can you imagine me going out to a field, just standing there, looking across the field and saying, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Ryan right over. And then I run and there's no one on the other side. That's crazy. Right? And yet that's how some of us functionally are living out our Christian lives. We are playing Red Rover by ourselves, but we are meant to strive side by side together. Now some would say, well, yeah, but the church is messy. Well, of course it is. Have you ever seen a team sport before? It's messy. Just this last week, I saw the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback yelling at one of his coaches. This happens in team sports Similarly, there'll be times where people in the church, your teammates, drive you crazy. But that doesn't change the nature of the sport, does it? It's still a team sport. It always has been and it always will be. We need each other. To stand firm and stand our ground, we need the support of our teammates. We need the support of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because when we're together, we're stronger. I've shared this before, but I'll say it again. In the midst of the trials that we've gone through as a family, one of the things that has sustained us is the support of our teammates, to use the analogy. It's that we've been striving side by side with others for the faith of the gospel. Now, of course, it's true. We could not have persevered without Christ or the aid of the Holy Spirit. That's obvious. But it's also true. We could not have persevered without you, the body of Christ. People reaching out to us or sending us a verse at just the right moment a card or a gift when we are feeling most anxious, someone praying for us when we felt completely exhausted and defeated. Christianity is a team sport. So listen, if you're not on the team because you're not a Christian, let me encourage you this morning to start by recognizing your own sin and turning to Jesus Christ and saving faith for the forgiveness of sins, knowing he died on the cross for you. But then recognize that you are called to be a part of a team. 
Some of you, though, have maybe been on the team for a while. You've just forgotten that it's a team sport. You're playing solo Red Rover when you need some teammates. If that's the case, let me invite you this morning to come back to the team. Join a gospel community group. Build relationships with other Christians in the church. Call someone, out, or call someone up this week. Take them out to lunch and talk about Jesus. You cannot do Christianity alone. It is a team sport. But notice the goal of the team sport is laid out in verse 27 also. We are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Hear this. You can have community in settings outside the church. For example, you could have community at the country club or in your CrossFit gym or in your workplace. You can live side by side with others as they pursue a common goal for a team sport or an educational goal or a community goal or a work goal. But the goal of Christian fellowship is different. We are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we aren't just trying to encourage each other in generic ways. We're trying to point one another to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone. We're trying to advance the good news of Christ together. We are together for the gospel. As Christians, we're often known by what we're against. On some level, there are things that we're against. But more importantly, I would argue we should be known by what we are for. We are for the good news of Jesus Christ. We are for others hearing about this good news. We are for others experiencing the joy of knowing Jesus more. And so for this reason, we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, trying to help others hear about Jesus, but also trying to encourage one another in Christ. So that's the second way we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Third, third way we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel is we're not frightened by our opponents. Verses 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and not from God. Let's just be honest here. If you're a Christian, there's a lot that we could be afraid of right now. What will it look like to be a Christian who lives or works in the corporate world 10 years from now? What will it look like for our kids in schooling 10 years from now? As a church, will we still be able to preach the word of God in its entirety 10 years from now? Or will we lose our tax-exempt status? Or worse yet, may the government try to shut us down? I don't know the answers to those questions. You probably don't either. But while those prospects are scary, it's probably helpful to remember that the Philippians were facing a situation that was just as scary, if not more so. Economic instability, social ostracization, loss of freedom, even loss of life, all of it was on the table for the Philippian Christians. And yet Paul tells the Philippians, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. That's a pretty bold statement. Don't be frightened by anything. I think Paul understands the nature or the bold nature of that statement because then in the rest of the passage, he goes on a bit of a tangent as to why we don't need to be frightened by our opponents. And he gives us three reasons, kind of indirectly, but three reasons why we don't have to be afraid. The first is this, trusting in God, trusting in God and not being afraid of our opponents is a sign of our salvation and a sign of our opponents' destruction. And so why do we not have to be afraid? Because first, Suffering is a sign of our salvation, but also a sign of our opponent's destruction. Again, verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. And that from God. 
In 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us that if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 1 is this, persevering through trials and suffering actually helps us to understand or helps us to see that our faith is genuine. It's a sign of our salvation. But it's also, and this is what's interesting, what Paul says here in Philippians, it's also a sign to our opponents of their destruction. I can think of no better story to illustrate that reality than one that is laid out by John Piper in his book, Desiring God. In Desiring God, Piper recounts the biography of a Russian man named Sergei Kordakov. Kordakov was a member of the Russian secret police and commissioned by the Russian government to raid Christian prayer gatherings and persecute believers with incredible brutality. In the process of doing so, Kordakov encountered a Christian woman named Natasha. Natasha was young, beautiful, committed to the cause of Christ. But unfortunately for her, her Christian faith put her squarely in the crosshairs of the Russian secret police. On one occasion, Kordakov and his men raided a Christian prayer meeting. They found Natasha at the meeting, and one of the soldiers named Victor picked up Natasha, threw her up against the wall, and knocked her semi-conscious and moaning on the floor. And as he did so, he laughed. I bet that knocked her faith in God right out of her. But to surprise, or to their surprise, three days later, Kordakov and his men found Natasha at another prayer meeting. So she'd been praying, she'd been beaten, she shows up again. This time, Kordakov and his men treated her even more violently. They threw her on a table face down, stripped off her clothes, and then Kordakov proceeded to beat her with his hands until her skin started to blister and pieces of her bloody flesh started to come off in his hands. When Kordakov was so tired he could no longer lift his hands anymore, that's when he stopped beating her, pushed her off the table, and left her there in a heap. They thought for sure this would be the end of Natasha, but it wasn't. Amazingly, a short time later, Kordakov and his men encountered Natasha at a third prayer meeting, and this time something was different. In fact, at this point, I think it's probably helpful just to hear from Kordakov in his own words, his account of that third meeting. So let me read here again. This is taken from the book Desiring God. Sergei Kordakov writes, There she was again, Natasha Zadanova. Several of the guys saw her too. Alex Guliev moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor, this is the one who beat her earlier, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her, nobody. For one of the first times in my life, Kordakov writes, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She'd been beaten horribly. She'd been warned and threatened. She'd gone through unbelievable suffering, but here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at her hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. Later, the Lord would open Sergei Kordakov's heart to the good news of the gospel of Christ. And he would attribute that in large part to the suffering of Natasha. Because she was willing to be beaten repeatedly for her faith, he saw that she had something he did not have. And he was troubled by it. I think this is what Paul's talking about in verse 28. Our willingness to suffer joyfully for the gospel of Christ is a sign of our salvation. 
It's a sign of the genuineness of our faith that we would persevere, but it is also a sign to our opponents of their destruction. Now, without question, not every tormentor will turn out like Sergei Kordikov coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But there is something about a willingness to suffer for Jesus that serves as a sign of our salvation, but also a sign to our opponents of their destruction, that we have something that cannot be explained. And this is one reason why Paul says we don't have to be afraid. Because when we suffer, it's a sign of the genuineness of our faith, but also a sign of the destruction of our opponents. Secondly, though, the reason we don't have to be be afraid of our opponents or frightened by them in any way is because suffering is part of God's plan for us. Verse 29, this is what Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, there are a lot of strange verses in the Bible that are countercultural. Philippians 1.29 is one of them. It has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that not only should we believe in him, but we should also suffer for him. The language of granting is the language of a gift. We have been gifted the ability, Paul is saying, not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. That is really strange. We've been gifted. We've been gifted with the ability to suffer for him. It's strange, but it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says it this way. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we're persecuted for Jesus Christ or we suffer for his sake, our character grows. In fact, the New Testament bears witness to this consistently. Our character grows as we trust God in the midst of suffering. But also, Jesus would say in Matthew 5, our reward in heaven is great, and we join the long list of apostles and prophets who've suffered in the same way. And actually, that's the third reason why Paul says we don't have to be afraid. Because others have suffered as well, and they have endured. And that gives us confidence that we can endure also. In fact, this is what I think we see in verses 29 and 30. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict, the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul encourages the Philippians, listen, this suffering that you're enduring is the same suffering that I'm enduring. There's something about knowing that we're not going through it alone that gives us confidence. When I was in high school, I hated track workouts, but I also pushed through them because of the guy running next to me. I could not be the wimp, right? If they could do it, I could do it too. In the same way, knowing that others have suffered for Christ over the years. In fact, throughout the course of history, there have been many Christians who've suffered on behalf of Christ, and yet they've endured. This gives us confidence that we can endure also, and we don't have to be afraid. When we think of the Pauls, the Jeremiah's, the Peter's, the John's, the Natasha's, we realize God gives his people endurance. He even uses our suffering to draw us closer to Christ. Now, I do think there's a sense in which our everyday suffering draws us closer to Christ as well. I'm talking about sickness, disease, the brokenness of the world. As we go through these things, we learn to trust Christ in ways that we otherwise couldn't. In fact, based on the rest of the New Testament, I think it's clear those difficulties too are part of God's plan. All of our suffering has purpose and meaning. Whatever suffering you're going through right now, it is not meaningless. Whether it be the suffering of sickness or the suffering of persecution. 
That said, though, in Philippians 1.29, I do think Paul is specifically referring to suffering that comes about as a direct result of our faith in Christ. And Paul's point is, we do not have to be afraid of the persecution or suffering that might come our way because we believe in Jesus. We don't have to be afraid because our suffering is a sign of our salvation, our opponent's destruction. We don't have to be afraid because our suffering is a part of God's plan. And we don't have to be afraid because others have endured suffering and they were able to endure and we will be able to endure also. So whatever it is that you're most afraid of, maybe there's something you think about in terms of where our country's headed and it leaves you frightened. Paul's encouragement to you this morning is you don't have to be afraid. God is still in control, and he's still good, and he's still faithful, and he's working all things, including our suffering for his good. And so for this reason, Paul says, don't be afraid of what they might do to you. And this is yet another way we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But hear this, the only way that any of this is possible, the only way we can stand firm in one faith, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not be frightened by our opponents, The only way this is possible, I'm convinced, is if we know who Jesus is and we are motivated by his love. Look at how many times in this passage, Paul mentions Jesus as a way of motivating us, saying, for the sake of Jesus. Look at first, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, the gospel of Christ. Again, verse 27 continues. So that when I come and see you, I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the gospel of Christ. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Right? Paul's motivation, why would you do this? It's because of Jesus. It's only when you understand what Jesus has done for you that you will want to live in a way worthy of the gospel. Why would you stand firm against opposition? Or why would you strive with others in a battle? Or why would you be unafraid of your opponents unless you believe the cause was worth it? And the point is, and this is what Paul is driving at, it is worth it because the cause is worth it. Jesus died so that we could be set free. Jesus rose from the dead conquering death, and Jesus will come again and make things right. And if we are in Jesus Christ, then we are, we are, we have the inheritance. And we are sons and daughters of the King. It's because of those realities. It's because of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's going to do. This is why we stand firm. And this is why we strive side by side. And this is why we remain unfrightened by our opponents. It's because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the key. Listen, as I learned in New York, it's hard sometimes to live up to certain standards of behavior. Whether it be in the courtroom, the classroom, or the boardroom, we often fail to live in a manner worthy of our setting. And while it's even harder to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, we have an entirely different motivation. We love Jesus. And we know what he did for us. And we know what he's going to do. And because of that, we stand firm in one spirit. We strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we are not frightened by our opponents. Or to say more simply, we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because we believe that Jesus is worth it. And we want the rest of the world to know it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. This is a challenging passage in some ways because we know that we are often prone to want to run from persecution, to run from suffering. And yet, here in Philippians 1, Paul addresses it head on. He says that we can strive for our faith 
We can stand firm together. We don't have to be afraid of our opponents. And all of it is because of what Jesus did. So God, I pray that you would help us this week to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because we understand what Jesus did for us. Help us to live this way, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.